How many of you like change? This morning I walked up and uh, I looked and the, um, the elements, the cups, were not here on the table. And I thought, oh no, they're not there. And then I remembered that we're putting them on the back table now. Walking up when Mike was supposed to do the scripture reading wasn't change. It was just me being focused on what the next thing was, which for me was coming up here to be with all of you. Uh, and then the last thing, just another example. Um, we, yesterday we painted one of the walls in our kitchen, and it went from being a dark blue to a bright yellow. And it's a change. I walk in there and I look at it and I say, that's different. I'm not sure if I like it yet, but... I probably will in a few days. Kelly likes it, and that's what matters, right? Think about if you are one of the Israelites in Jesus' day. Your entire experience has been with the system that Moses brought about, that God revealed to him, sacrifice, temple, priest, all of these sorts of things. God speaking to his people through angels, through prophets, and all of these different examples. And now there are people coming along and saying to you, Jesus, not all those things. And obviously we understand as we look through the New Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. But if you were a first century Israelite trying to wrestle through all of these things, you might have the response that they did that led to the calling of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Are the Gentiles supposed to be part of this church? They don't follow the law of Moses. Are these people really followers of God? They don't go to the temple and do sacrifices. They don't act the way that good Jews are supposed to act in terms of all the rituals they're supposed to follow. And in that context, the author of Hebrews comes and says, here are the reasons why Jesus is better. And that's a theme that runs throughout the whole book. And another big theme is this idea of warning. If Jesus is better and you turn aside from him, what will result? God's judgment. We see that at the end of our passage today. We see it again in chapter 4, in chapter 6, in chapter 10. It's all throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Don't neglect him because of the warning of God's judgment on those who reject Jesus, his appointed son. And here's all the ways in which Jesus is better. The first of those ways is in our passage this morning, which is that Jesus is better than the angels. Now, why would it have been that the author of Hebrews would have felt it necessary to tell the people that Jesus is better than the angels? Well, if you look at the church at Corinth, for example, they were convinced that if they had certain spiritual gifts, like messages from God or speaking in tongues, that they were better off. And so there were apparently people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing who were convinced that if they heard from angels, then that would be just as good, if not better, than the revelation Jesus had shared with them as he walked this earth. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, Jesus is better than the angels. Let me give you all these reasons why, and here's your proper response to it. So let's look at those reasons together. Now you notice I said the author of Hebrews, and not Paul and not uh, some of the other names that have been put forth, because 
There is no consensus on who the author of Hebrews is. Could it have been Paul? Yes. Here's the reasons why many people think that it was not. The quotations from the Old Testament are all from the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew copy of the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't start out the letter saying, I, Paul, and giving a greeting like he does in all of his other letters. And uh, some of the other stylistic things are a little bit different in terms of vocabulary and presentation than all of his other epistles. Does this automatically mean that Paul was not the author? No, it just would mean that this is the one letter that is distinct and different from all the other ones that Paul wrote. Does it need to be Paul for it to be a part of the Bible? Here are the criteria for a book being considered part of the New Testament canon. Was it written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle? Why do we say that? Matthew was an apostle. Um, John was an apostle. What about Mark and Luke? Mark was not an apostle, but he seems to have been closely associated with Peter. Luke was not an apostle, but he was closely associated with Paul. So it had to have been either an apostle or a close associate of an apostle, someone who was a first-hand eyewitness of these things. Furthermore, for a book to be considered part of the New Testament, it had to be something that was consistent with the message of the rest of the New Testament. So you have a, a Gospel of Thomas or some apocryphal literature or whatever else. We don't consider it part of the Bible because it's not part of the Bible because it teaches something completely different than the unified message of the New Testament. So does it need to be Paul? Not necessarily. Could it have been Paul? Possibly. Some other legitimate options would be someone like Apollos or one of these other believers who was well-versed in what the Israelites would have known and been taught, someone who has come to um, trust in Jesus Christ, and someone who is now writing to admonish the churches with these truths. And so, without resolving that for you, those are just some of the quick overview of the ideas about the authorship of Hebrews. As we look at the book, we see that it coincides, it, it, it is, presents a unified message with the rest of Scripture. That Jesus is God, that He is better, that there is one way of salvation, all of these sorts of ideas we see elsewhere in Scripture. And so, regardless of who the author was, this is a book that we can be encouraged by and find value in. But because its audience was written to the Hebrews, much like the book of James was written to the 12 tribes who were scattered abroad, it has a unique connection to what we've been looking at in the Old Testament as we finished up the book of Exodus. But we'll see more of those connections as we proceed through the book. First of all, though, why is Jesus better than the angels? He's better than the angels because he is the final revelation of God to humanity in terms of the ultimate revelation of God. Now certainly there will be examples of prophets coming in the end times, the two witnesses for example, and even the apostles came after the days of Jesus and spoke God's truth to people. But in Jesus, God is perfectly and fully revealed in a way that all those earlier messages did not accomplish. It says he spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator. 
He is the exact representation of God. When we see Jesus, we see God Himself. He has made purification for sins. He is better than the angels because He has a more excellent name. Why is that the case? He is the Son of God. Verses 5 and 6. You are my son, today I have begotten you. I will be a father to him, he shall be a son to me. None of the angels are the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. None of the angels receive worship because they are not God. Jesus receives worship, verse 6. Let all the angels of God worship him. What are the angels? They are ministers, servants, great Glorious, majestic, verse 7, but not God himself, not the Son of God. Jesus is better than the angels because he is the Son of God who deserves worship. Jesus is better than the angels, furthermore, because he rules and reigns. Verse 8, your throne is forever and ever, O God. It's kind of like the passage where you see in Acts that's quoted from the Psalms where it says, And the Lord said to my Lord, We'll see that here in a moment. It's clearly not just God the Father. There's someone else being spoken to. And the Son is being spoken to as God. And so he should be recognized as God. And he is the ruler. Now we think of God the Father as the one who reigns sovereignly over all things. But in what sense does Jesus reign over all things? We were talking about this idea of the kingdom of heaven from the book of Matthew this morning in the Sunday school hour. And there's this tension of when is the kingdom? Is it now? Is it later? Is it in heaven? Is it on earth? All of these sorts of questions in our minds. What there's not a question about is who's the king. God is the king. And specifically, God has exalted Jesus Christ to be the one, to be the heir of David, to sit on the throne of David, and to be the eternal ruler. Now we can't separate the three persons of the Godhead to an extent that we say Jesus is reigning, so that means God the Father and God the Spirit are not also reigning, right? Because God is one. But in this passage, it emphasizes that Jesus has been exalted and Jesus rules. What is his rule characterized by? It lasts forever. What was true of every human king? David grew old. Solomon grew old. All of the other kings that followed after them grew old, and they died, and their reigns ended, right? Jesus' reign will not end because he will not die. His kingdom is also characterized by righteousness. Look at the end of verse 8. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. There have been kings and rulers who have tried to accomplish righteousness. There are people who, they wouldn't call it righteousness, but they want to accomplish some sort of justice in our society today. And while their efforts, to some extent, are admirable, they will fail. There will not be a righteous kingdom until Jesus comes. What is true of him? He has loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, so he's been anointed. This imagery of anointing was the setting apart of a king to rule and to reign. It didn't necessarily mean like he immediately reigned right after he was anointed. David was anointed when he was a boy, and he doesn't reign for some years until God actually 
sets him up as the king in place of Saul. But it is a certainty that he will reign. What is true furthermore about this? You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. There's a distinction being made here between God's works and God's person. Why is this important? Because there are false perspectives of God that make God too tightly wrapped up with his universe. For example, there's a heresy called process theology that basically says the reason that God wanted to do things and couldn't do things in their understanding of it is because God is wrapped up and bound by the rules of the universe just like you and I are. So open theism would be God couldn't do something because he didn't know it was coming. Process theology would say God couldn't do something because he just couldn't do anything about it. He lacks the power instead of he lacks the knowledge. What does the Bible say? God has both power and knowledge. So there's a separation between God and his creation. Some people have pushed that separation too far, and they've landed at heresies like deism, which says basically God wound up the universe, set it on the shelf, and went off to do something else. That he has no interest in the world in which people live. Or um, some of the more recent ideas in the last hundred years of this idea that God is so exalted that he's not really knowable at all. He's just way up here, and we're down here, and there's no connection. We can sort of get shadows and pictures of God, but we can't really know him. What does this passage say? Jesus is the exact representation of God, and we see God in Jesus, and Jesus came and dwelt among men, much like it says in John's gospel and in John's epistles. And so because Jesus has come, we can't say God is unknowable, God is unreachable. We can't deny God's character in terms of his knowledge and his power. We can't deny God's character in terms of his connection with his people in the world that he's made. But he is distinct from that creation. It will come to an end. And whether you take the words in 1 Peter to mean that it will be destroyed and recreated or that it will be purged and reshaped, it will come to an end as we know it and be purified and be a new heavens and a new earth But the one constant throughout all of the span of human history and eternity beginning to end, which we can't really say beginning and end because it doesn't have those things, is God. God is. We saw in Exodus 3, God revealed himself as I am. I just exist. No one else can claim that. And that reality is attributed to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God who deserves worship. Jesus is the eternal and righteous ruler. And Jesus is the one who will come and reign. Verse 13, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There is this idea as we proceed through the unfolding of God's purpose and God's plan that we see additional stages as God carries out what he said he would do. In Genesis 3.15, it's just, The seed of the woman will crush the serpent. Then more and more description. What family, what nation is he going to come from? And then what tribe is he going to come from? And then where is he going to be born? We saw that last week. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Go there. You know, all of these sorts of things. And then, as we proceed through all of these things, we see that not only is he coming once, but he's coming again. And part of that is he comes first, 
to suffer, to die, to be raised, to be exalted as he ascends on high. And he comes back to reign. And so in that intervening time period, verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That has not yet taken place. But that promise is not made to angels, but to Jesus. They are not the firstborn son of God. They do not deserve worship. They are not the ones who rule. They're the ones who serve. They are not the ones who are waiting to rule over the whole earth. They are the ones who instead serve those, verse 14, who will inherit salvation. Jesus is better than the angels. So what should you do about that? We could pause there, and that's where the chapter ends, right? Jesus is better than the angels. Check. Heard it. Agree with it. Great thing to think about. Let's move on. That's why I think we need to go into the next chapter, because I think that this section is bounded through God speaking, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, God speaking, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 2. And I think in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we get the point of why it matters that Jesus is better than the angels and what we're supposed to do about it. What does he say? Pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. How many of you have ever been on a boat? Okay? If you've been on a boat, what happens if you just turn off the engine or put the sail down? Usually you drift, right? It doesn't stay in one spot. Now, you can put an anchor down, you'll stay in one spot. What happens to us is kind of like what happens to the boat. If we become complacent and think, because I knew these things, or because I know these things, or because I've looked at them before, thought about them before, if we stop being actively involved in pursuing Jesus, we drift. So the author of Hebrews admonishes his audience, pay much closer attention. And pay much closer attention is not necessarily um, learn more facts, right? Because he doesn't say that. He doesn't say learn more facts about Jesus. He says pay closer attention to what you've already heard. This is so important because so often in our churches we think, that if we send our kids to Sunday school and if we sit in the pew every Sunday and if we you know, listen to a message during the week or listen to good Christian music or whatever else it might be, if we check off those boxes, God is happy with us and we're doing everything that God's called us to do and we are spiritually secure. And all those things are good. Go to Sunday school. Come to church. Listen to good Christian music. Listen to sermons, whatever else. But they are not a guarantee for you to be in a right relationship with God because your relationship with God is not just an accumulation of facts. It is paying attention to what God has said. What does that look like? A while back, we were going through the book about habits of grace. It talked about things like meditation, right? 
meditation is not sitting on the floor cross-legged trying to empty your mind of everything and making weird noises. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is think about the things that you know about God. And it's not think about the things you know about God in the sense of, I'm having a temptation. I remember this verse I learned in Awana as a kid or on Wednesday nights or, or in Sunday school. And so I say the verse and all of a sudden the temptation disappears. It is the transforming power of God's word as we meditate on it that when we come face to face with it, we say, I can't do this sin that I'm being tempted to do because this is what's true about Jesus. So we're, we're taking it beyond just I know this thing to how am I going to live because I know this thing. And so when the author of Hebrews says, pay closer attention, again, it's not learn more facts, memorize more verses. Those are good things to do. It's you know truth about Jesus. Pay attention to it. Like we saw last week, the scribes and the Pharisees had most Old Testament memorized. What didn't happen? They didn't go to worship Jesus. Jesus appears before them. They didn't believe in him. And I'm not saying we're in the exact same spot as them, but I'm saying if we start acting like them and thinking, I know all this stuff, God's happy with me. I'm in the right place doing the right things externally. God's happy with me. We're not paying closer attention. Why is this so important? Verses 2 and 3. The word spoken through angels proved unalterable. There's a couple passages in the Old Testament that make it clear that this is the law that God revealed. That's what's being referred to here. If that proved unalterable, and judgment fell on those who ignored it, He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is better. But here was what was true in the Old Testament. If in the old system of things, judgment fell on those who rejected God's word, what do you think is going to happen if you reject Jesus, who is better than that old way of life that you knew as an Israelite, according to the law of Moses and all of these things that you followed? If God's judgment fell on the Israelites when they didn't practice circumcision or when they didn't put incense in the altar the right way or when they didn't worship God the way God wanted to be worshipped. What was the result? People were cut off from the tribes. People were swallowed up by the earth. People were um, put to death by a plague. God's judgment fell on those who did not pay attention to his word in the Old Testament, right? And here I think is the heart of this passage. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This is one of those warnings in Hebrews. And we look at it and we say, alright, well, I'm a Christian, I'm on my way to heaven. Why do I need a warning that I can lose my salvation? If I know I can't lose my salvation, why is it a big deal? There's a couple of different possibilities. One is that you can lose your salvation. There's, another, there's a lot of other passages that argue against that. But here's the danger. I don't think you can lose your salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that. But sometimes, being convinced of that, we come way over here and we say, so it doesn't matter what I do. 
There's guys who've come along in the last hundred years and they've said, you can basically be exactly like an unbeliever your entire life, but as long as you prayed that prayer, you're going to heaven. The New Testament argues clearly against that. If you don't do what God says for most of your life, and there's zero difference between you and someone who doesn't know God, why do you think that you're a Christian? These passages are supposed to produce this response in us. If you're an unbeliever, you say, I don't know God. And if you're a believer, you say, I don't want God's judgment to fall on me. I don't want to be an unbeliever, acting like an unbeliever, living the way an unbeliever lives. I need to be motivated to pursue God fervently. That's the effect that these warning passages are supposed to produce. Not doubt about whether or not I started to believe in Jesus at some point in the past, but an ongoing motivation to keep following Jesus and persevere to the end. There's been notable examples recently of people for whom this has not been true. And Brothers at Arms last night, we were talking about this. You have someone who says, I'm a Christian, and... Um, grows up in church, decides to go in a career of Christian comedy, books all these shows, goes around doing it for five, six years, has to quit because he's committed immorality with like 20 women. Good church kid. Apparently, or seemed to be, doesn't seem to know God or, or care about following him. We look at someone like that and we're like, yeah, I would never do that. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? We need God's grace because we're closer to that reality than we think we are. Take somebody who writes books on what relationships are supposed to look like in the, in the church, pastors a couple of different churches, and then up and after 20, 25 years says... I don't think I really believe in Christianity anymore. Take someone who's a well-known leader of a Christian college or university who lives in open sin. That reality is not as far as we would like to think it is from manifesting itself from our hearts. And the only thing that's going to keep us from becoming another of those news stories about here's another hypocrite Christian who's rejected their so-called God is by God's grace heeding the warnings that we see in a book like Hebrews. Pay attention. Don't neglect the great salvation that you've received because Jesus is far better How do we know? Why is it so important? Not only so that we don't drift, not only because God's judgment falls if we do, but also because it's true. Look at the second part of verse 3 into verse 4. It was spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God testified with them by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Because Jesus is better than the angels, 
Don't neglect this great salvation. Pay close attention to it. God's judgment falls on those who don't. God has confirmed his word in many different ways. So what does this look like on a daily basis? It looks like actually thinking about God's truth throughout the week. Not asking for a show of hands, but think about this question. How often during the week, in an average day, do you think about God, who he is, what he said, what he wants for your life? So many other things consume our minds. This comes out in how we deal with sin. How do we deal with sin? Do we deal with sin? It's easy for us to just stop dealing with sin because unbelievers around us don't really care other than if we get caught in something big and then we lose our reputation with them. But like minor sins, right? Like, like gossiping or like being envious of someone or complaining or... Um, any of these kinds of things, they're not really that big of a deal, so we don't really have to deal with them. So, not actually thinking about what's true and then living it out, not actually dealing with our sin, not actually caring for one another in the way that God calls us to do. We see that especially in chapter 10. It's a theme that's developed throughout the book. But one of the things that is important in the context of the church in terms of not falling away is our connection with other believers. So do you have a connection with other believers? Do you talk to other people in the church during the course of the week? I hear examples of you doing it, so I'm not saying this is something we never do, but I'm just saying this is something that's important for us to do. Pray with one another. Seek God together so that we do not find ourselves to be neglecting our great salvation. Whether that be through the idle distractions that consume our thoughts from the world around us, whether that be through intense wickedness that we think no one will ever find out about, whether that be through just laziness on our part, whatever the reasons that lead us to neglect our great salvation, we need to be convinced that Jesus is better than the angels and we cannot neglect the salvation that God has provided for us. God has spoken. God has spoken best in Jesus. He has inherited a more excellent name. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention so we do not drift. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them. Don't neglect your great salvation. Jesus is better. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage, we see many great truths that we could take a whole lot more time and explore in terms of the nature of Jesus' kingdom, in terms of the reality of his deity, in terms of what it means to be your only begotten son, but Lord, the main point, I think, for us is to consider whether we are neglecting the great salvation that you have provided for us. 
First, do we know you? But then if we know you, do we actually have a relationship with you that we are actively and fervently pursuing? Or like in many of our human relationships, do we just stop putting forth the effort and things start to not be as good as they used to be in a friendship, in a marriage, in a relationship with children or with other relatives? And then we look back after a few years and we wonder what happened. Lord, help us to care about our relationship with you, to pursue you with all of who we are. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.